Dearest Skylar, I hope this TikTok finds you well. It is dark here in the Dogecoin mines. I often think of you to stay warm, and the electric Lambo will be able to buy when I fill my e-wallet with those fat stacks. Some of my tight bros have fallen to the COVID Omega variant, and I wonder whether that wouldn't be a better fate than running this blockchain and waiting for a sign from Elon Musk that never comes. Until then, I remain faithfully yours. Travis. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the upcoming The Rush from Vault Comics, uh, as well as comics like Way of X, Coda, and John Constantine Hellblazer, Cy Spurrier. Welcome, Cy. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very lovely to be here. All right. So, uh, Cy, uh, first time question for first time guests. Uh, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Well, uh, that's a really good question. So here in the UK, um, comics sort of fall into two categories. You've got the, the kind of kids comics, which we have uh, the, like the classics, the Dandy and the Beano. Um, this is a massive digression, but there's a whole story that I, I urge readers to look up about the weird coincidence of uh, two separate comics on either side of the Atlantic being created called Dennis the Menace within about a week of each other that have nothing to do with each other. Just <laughs> when I say Dennis the Menace, I'm not thinking of what you're thinking of, but uh, that was a comic I read when I was a little kid. Um, and then there's a big gap until I was about 16 when one day I stumbled on uh, Judge Dredd versus Batman, Judgment on Gotham by Simon Bisley. Um, so ridiculously, you know, every, every biceps has another biceps and, and <laughs> every six pack is in fact a 13 pack. And yeah, that, that sort of blew my mind. It wasn't quite what I expected when I thought of comics. Um, and there's that moment that you'll hear quite a lot from, from comics creators when they first realized that comics were made. Like there's, it's stupid. We, we sort of, as youngsters, we go through life and we see all these printed media and we just sort of assume they, they fall from the sky somehow or they sort of cruise off a printing press with no actual creative impetus behind them. So I had that moment, I was standing there in a shop flicking through Judgment on Gotham and I realized not only was this somebody's art that you know looked nothing like I'd ever seen before, but also that somebody had written it and that there was a job in the world called comic book writer <laughs> and I had always been the kid who wrote the creative writing essay instead of the let's let's analyze the use of alliteration and fucking sense and sensibility or whatever it is I'd always rather write my own story so this got me thinking well hey maybe I can do that and um it wasn't it wasn't a big gap between reading my first kind of mature is the wrong word but you know what I mean the first the first grown-up comic as opposed to kids comic um and deciding that that was something I wanted to do I spent a good few years from about 16 to 19 submitting with hindsight really bad ideas to 2000 AD so 2000 AD for those of your your listeners who don't know is a um venerable science fiction anthology title we have here in the UK um, the anthology is the important part. Like uh, conventional wisdom says, an anthology title won't succeed in the US. Now, I I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I think many have tried and, and most have failed. But what's beautiful about 2000 AD is that each issue, so they come out weekly. Each issue has 
I think five or six very short chapters in it of continuing stories. So you only get five pages per week, but you only have to wait a week for the next installment. So that's that's the trade-off. And one of those installments, one of those slots in the comic is given over um, to five page one-shot stories called Future Shocks. In fact, there's a variety of different ones. There's Future Shocks, Terror Tales, Time Twisters, all sorts. Um, it's a form that Alan Moore excelled at, which is kind of why it stuck around. And it is very simply a story that has a twist in the tail. And you would think it's quite easy to tell a five-page story with a twist in the tail, but no, no, that's, it's one of the hardest things you can do as a writer in comics. And after, as I say, many years of thinking I was the bee's knees and discovering very slowly that I was in fact very shit at this job as a as an arrogant little teenager, finally deciding to listen to the advice the editor was giving me, and finally got a gig writing my first Future Shock. Um, and yeah, that kind of, that's the, the, the answer has gone from what's the first comic I've read into how did I get into comics, which is, which is a little illustration of how easily I waffle these days. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's the same answer. I was never a big geek, never a big sort of Marvel DC fan before I kind of tumbled into writing comics. I just, I, I saw comics, I started reading them. And at the same time in parallel, I decided that this was something I wanted to do. I, I will say in terms of, of the idea of anthologies in American comics, I, I feel like DC of all the publishers is just starting to hit on that as mm. something that it can work with between like the holiday specials and things like Batman, Urban Legends. Uh, black and white, red and blue, black and gold, the color anthologies. Yeah. Are they like double shipping or are those, are those weeklies, monthlies? How does that work? They're... Uh, Double size monthlies. You get four, six, or eight page stories per month, and they're themed to. There's some Batman black and white, Superman red and blue, Wonder Woman black and gold is currently running, and Batman Urban Legends, which is a monthly Batman family type anthology. And and I mean, it's, the stupid thing is, I've written some of these things, and I still don't know the question. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, you've got an Urban Legend story. Yeah, no, some bits and bobs but so all the ones i've done have been one shots is that true of all of them or are there sort of ongoing chapter style things in there the color ones are one-offs uh, urban legends usually has the first six issues were there was a six uh, a feature that ran a red hood feature that ran those six there were a couple of a three-parter the most recent issue seven was seven i believe in eight are going to be just all one-offs and then there's going to be another serial starting after the fear state crossover got it got it i mean that's I, hopefully i'm completely wrong about this but the 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 notion was that if you are putting out a comic just once a month and your um installments your periodical installments are relatively short, shorter than 20 pages, then your readers are probably going to be thinking, well, I didn't get enough story in order for my attention to last until next month. Hopefully that's wrong. Hopefully that's changing because it's a really lovely experimental format that everybody can laugh about with. I'm a sucker for anthologies, so. <laughs> well, likewise. Uh, but uh, you are here primarily to talk about The Rush, which is your upcoming series at Vault, with artist Nathan Gooden, colorist Addison Duke, letterer Hassan Atman Elhow. Uh, issue number one is out October 27th. 
the solicit text reads pretty dramatic. So, uh, Matt, for the listeners, I'm going to let you take this one with your uh, usual flair. 1899, Yukon Territory, a frozen frontier bloodied and bruised by the last great gold rush. But in the lawless wastes to the north, something whispers in the hindbrains of men, drawing them to a blighted valley where giant spider tracks mark the snow and impossible guns roar in the night. To Brokhoof, where gold and blood are mined alike. Now, stumbling towards its haunted forests, comes a woman gripped not by greed, but the snarling rage of a mother in search of her child. That was pretty great. All <laughs> 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 oh, my solicit text, that worked very nicely. You're not the first person to say that. I think I might have a new sideline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, you, did, you did the uh, audio version of uh, previews. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know there'd be many who'd buy that, right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Steve Geppi, if you're listening, but uh, what is the uh, what's the origin of this project? Oh heavens, uh, it's one of those ones where it just sort of accreted from from lots of different places. I mean, there's it's it's pretty rare that I ever can say that a, an idea for a project has just sort of appeared all in one whole cloth. Um, I think maybe only once actually, and that was a really convoluted time travel story that sort of wouldn't have ever occurred to me if it hadn't happened all at once. Generally what happens is that you get um, a little nugget of interest in this um, and a little notion of a character from over there and uh, half of an idea for a, a bit of plot from over here. And then you realize that these things are drawn to each other by some creative gravity and they start to swirl like a, like a dust cloud. And there comes a point when you realize they've probably done as much work on their own as they can do. And you have to now start thinking about it and bleeding from your face until extra bits start coming in, you know, to use this overextended metaphor, it's comets coming in from outside the system and gathering and forming bigger and bigger planetary bodies until eventually you stand back and you realize you've got a solar system a, a, a sort of functioning story in front of you so um with the rush and by the way the 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 full title which um i am i am uh, reluctant to use in solicits and stuff because i'm told that retailers don't like incredibly long titles but i do so <laughs> the, the full title is uh this hungry earth reddens under snow-clad hills um, which to me feels like a very kind of uh, uh, McCarthyan, um, quasi-pulpy Western sort of vibe. It tells you everything you need to know about the story. But most importantly, I had this idea that if retailers really don't like long titles, they would sit down having seen this long title and they'd be like, oh, this fucking Spurrier with stupid long titles. We'll have to just turn it into an acronym and, and, you know, just take the first letter of each. And that's when they get the rush. So that's why it's called the rush. Um, it came about because I'm a bit of a geek for history. And I I was in a charity shop, um, what you guys would call a thrift store, I guess, and, and came across this old, dusty coffee table edition of a um, portfolio of a photographer called E.A. Hegg, who was... Um, just sort of in the right place at the right time. He he was a, a traveling photographer, had his own little sort of mobile laboratory, and he happened to be there at the beginning of the 
the last great gold rush of our times, which was was there in the Yukon Territory around the Klondike Creek, uh, sort of started 1897, ran through to 1899 around there. Um, and of course, there had been plenty of gold rushes before, you know, the Black Hills, all the Australian stuff, lots of huge migrations of people traveling around the planet to get to these gold fields. But this was the first time that it was both near enough that hundreds of thousands of, well, people, but mostly North Americans could get there or could think that they could get there, but also far enough away that it was a genuinely astonishing journey. And the people who first made the strike on this little creek, it wasn't in fact the Klondike itself, it was, it was two creeks that are off the Klondike called Bonanza and El Dorado. Um, within weeks, the whole of those creeks were completely staked out. It took about a year for people to make their way up the Yukon River and over the mountains, and it was just the most grueling journey. People were dying of scurvy and people were waiting for six months at a time on the shores of Lake Bennett, waiting for the, the thaw to go in. It was just the most appalling journey that most of these people had made and all based on the rumor, this totally unfulfillable rumor that there was gold. Like they literally expected, those who made it, literally expected to find gold nuggets just lying on the snow waiting for them. And of course, they finally got there after all these incredible trials and tribulations. And what they discovered was that if they could stake a claim, they would have to, using a brazier, melt the soil because it was so frozen an inch at a time, digging through this freaking brutal earth six months just to get down to bedrock, at which point they almost never, they almost never realized that there was no gold there until it was too late so it was pretty grim clearly and I could talk about this for hours and I won't bore you with the whole detail but clearly this was a time and a place that mixes together extraordinary stories incredible human endurance but also a lot of really in-depth documentation there were photographers on the scene there were people writing diaries so there's a wealth of research and I read like geeky history books for fun anyway um, most importantly, because the whole phenomenon was underscored by very human drives. Avarice? Is it avarice? Question mark. That's one of the things that we look at in the rush. Clearly, all these people were going there because they wanted gold. But what you find when you look into it is that they weren't like greedy people. It was almost like they were afraid of missing out. It's more like FOMO than it was greed, which is quite interesting. Um, almost all the ones who made it rich lost their money straight away, but didn't seem to really regret that. They were sort of quite pleased to have gone through this. There's a lot of human emotion and a lot of really big thematic stuff, which in my view lends itself very well to exaggeration, stories about folklore and mythology. I mean, this is a wilderness, a frontier, so it works very nicely with those things anyway. So yeah, somewhere along the way, amidst my fascinations with that time and that place and my ideas about genre, my ideas about folklore, my ideas about legends and mythologies. And most of all, as you've just discovered, the fact that I am a dad, um, what created itself was a story about a world where everybody is 
driven almost insane by their desire to get to this place and to be part of this phenomenon, except for one person, one woman, in fact, who is going there because her son is missing. And she's the only one who's motives are just as powerful and just as driving as everybody else's but hers are pure hers are hers are based on love rather than based on some sort of transformative notion of what the future might hold so yeah that's a really long-winded answer <laughs> but as you can see there's no there's no like thunderbolt no holy shit i've had a great idea for a story it's it's more like watercolor layers being slowly built up bit by bit um but i think what we've ended up with is quite quite special now, was this, uh, you know, was this something that you ended up shopping around to a couple publishers or was it like Vault had approached you and said, hey, we're looking for some stuff for next year. Do you have something? Uh, the latter, entirely the latter. They, um, they came to me. I've always been, been quite sort of um, flirty, I guess, when it comes to, <laughs> to publishers. I've, um, I've always sort of kept my options open. I have an amazing relationship with Boom, for instance, and as long as I am writing creator-owned comics, I will want to write with Boom. Um, one of the great privileges of being a writer is that one has, you know, a, a number of slots on one slate that can be filled by different projects. So I get to I get to kind of itch lots of different scratches. Um, so yeah, Vault came to me. Adrian and Damien uh, said that they were interested in working with me. What did I have? And I, I always say when people do that, the first thing I say is, what do you want? You know, if you've got any any particular gaps, do you want a story about vampires or a story about uh, UFOs? Or is there some genre thing that you're looking to, to plug a gap? Um, and they gave me the exactly right answer, which is, no, no, whatever you want to write. <laughs> so that's that's what I pitched them. <laughs> Uh, you know, thinking about this, uh, thinking about this project, thinking about it's it as a a horror narrative, and and also kind of reading the uh, the Cliff Notes version of the Yukon Gold Rush, uh, <laughs> as I did leading up to this interview, I, I feel like there is something to be said for the prospectors of the 1890s being linked as you know narrative ancestors through a horror tale to like bullhorny teens of 1980s uh slasher movies yeah i think you're right i think it's um it's about people who's people to whom the bad things happen because they are so busy acting upon the wrong instincts that <laughs> it's very difficult to uh sympathize with some of them and then along comes the one who's got it right but who is being dragged into hell as a result of all the other people around them responding to their, not, it's, it's not right to say the wrong drives. It's just that they are less than pure drives. And that's like, we're, it's almost like a morality tale. It's, it's the story that's been around since before history began. The idea of the person who's got it right, the pure soul being tainted by the impurity of the people around them. And, and the question is, can that person save themselves? More importantly, can that person save everybody else around them? So there's nothing new in that as the kernel of the, the kind of the, um, the, the moral epicenter of this story. It's just that the, the precise trappings are something that I love. I love Westerns. I love stories set in wintry environments. I love monsters. Um, there's a lot of stuff in here about authority and about um, law and lawlessness and the, what it is that makes a country a country and, and all that kind of good old timey stuff that makes 
um, period pieces and especially frontier period piece period pieces so fascinating because one senses that if you if you can tell this is I think unique to to American history if you can tell a really good story it feels like you're contributing to the line of dominoes that leads up to the present you know like on my side of the Atlantic history is this unbearably huge thing that you can't possibly fit all into your head at once and it's so convoluted and there's no baddies and there's no goodies because they're all both as most humans really are so it's really easy to just sort of um winnow it down to to really unhelpful cliches and stereotypes and and by the way that's not necessarily untrue of the western as well it's more that the western is so perfectly tooled to present itself as recent folklore and i and i know that there are purists who will say no no you know a good western movie or comic or story of any sort has to be historically accurate and and i would defy anybody to say that there is any such thing because the west as we kind of like to imagine it never really existed <laughs> or if it did it existed for a couple of weeks um it's it's a place of muddled accuracy and mythology and that works perfectly for me as a storyteller because i love both those things there there's something that hit me hit the cynic in me as i was reading this but the fact that cryptocurrency acquisition is called mining yeah. really draws parallels to the suckers game that was the gold rush and gold mining you see these broken men in the book who sought their fortune and failed and i can't help thinking yep that's going to be bitcoin traders in a few years yeah, i think you're right and and it's i mean it's, it's something i've i've found myself saying while writing this thing the problem i think is not want i think we all are predisposed to want and that's just part of it's not even the human condition it's the animal condition we we desire we need we wish to acquire things because we sense that it makes us more successful, more safe, more productive, whatever. The problem, I think, is that we humans are shit at having. <laughs> I just don't think we're very good at it because having achieved something, having got something, we don't then go, great, game over. We go, okay, I want more. <laughs> I want the next thing. Um, as, a, as an ambitious creator, you, you discover you don't have an end game. You think, well, all I want to do is get published by 2000 AD and then, hmm, seem to have achieved that. All I want to do is get published by Marvel. Hmm, I seem to have achieved that. There's always another horizon. So this is another thing. I get, I get maudlin and, and profound when I start thinking about being a father, but as soon as you start seeing the world through, through kind of the eyes of responsibility for another human, you start to realise that so much of that stuff so much of the things that felt so important before are, it's not that they're unimportant, it's just that they're never going to be fulfilled. You know, you either, you either shackle yourself to the journey and just go as far as you can and you live with the fact that there's no end to the journey, or you reconcile yourself to finding some happy platform along the way and, and you start to focus on things like meaning. Um, if... If somebody asked me, have you been successful as a writer? If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would say, well, I haven't written Captain America and I haven't written Batman very much and blah, 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 blah. 
And now instead the answer is, well, have I changed many lives along the way? Do I believe in the things that I've written? Has it changed my life to have written these things? And I think the answer to those is mostly yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, if I die tomorrow, I won't die happy because I'm a writer. We don't do happy, but I, <laughs> I will at least feel like I've done okay. Uh, as a, as a uh, father myself, I think I tend to fall in the, uh, the second camp there in terms of. Uh, well, you've got to, haven't you? it's, it's such a, it's such a, an impossibility to be both a narcissist and a parent or a decent parent anyway. And mm. there is, uh, as, as toxic a truth as I suspected is, there is an element to competitive writing. And let's not deny that the comic book industry is a competitive place, which necessitates an element of narcissism. Um, so when you sort of take a step away from that, you start to wonder what really matters. <laughs> My God, I've got really maudlin. This is because I haven't slept. I'm sorry, guys. This is, supposed to, this is supposed to be a conversation about a Western comic, not about spurious soul-bearing process. Ah, uh, yeah. Th those bright, happy, not at all maudlin <laughs> Western comics. Yeah, talking to a sleep-deprived Brett in the afternoon. <laughs> oh, man. I, I will say, I, I, you know, 50 years from now, uh, I, I would like to see somebody write an, an epistolary horror comic about the crypto crash of the 2020s. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it'll happen. And that's, that's what's so fascinating about the, the Yukon rush. Like, it lasted two years maximum. And, and frankly, after the first six months, nobody was really getting rich anymore. All the, all the big gold was gone. But you've got these guys, the, the Bonanza Kings, mostly in Dawson City. And by the way, for the purposes of our story, we're like, we start in Dawson and then we go further north into the wilderness to discover this, this secondary little town called Brokoof. But these, in, in real life, the Bonanza Kings, some of them made and lost multiple fortunes. And I mean like stupid amounts of money, like hundreds of million, millions of dollars by today's money that they would make in a week and then lose in a month. And then rather than being shattered and suicidal, by the way, plenty of people did kill themselves during this whole wretched. But these guys, no, no, they were just like, hey, that was fun. Let's try again. <laughs> and they just did it again. And then like I read this book, a couple of them survived until much later, like the 1940s. And they were, they were interviewed as very elderly men they're all men, of course, because, because women are far more sensible than this. But, <laughs> but when the interview was put to them and the question was put to them, do you regret spending all that money? Couldn't you have held on to it a little bit better? Wouldn't you have rather have spent the rest of your life as an incredibly wealthy person rather than just having this little spike of incredible wealth and then losing it all? They were like, no, 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 no. That was, that was exactly the right thing that happened. I wouldn't change anything about it. As if they had gone through... A crucible it's like this was their <laughs> vietnam you know and they they had had this experience and they wouldn't change it because it had made them who they were and that's i think to your point about cryptocurrency i think that's what will happen you're going to get a lot of completely ruined people but 10 20 years later they'll be like yeah i should have known better but you know what that was the thing that happened that's all part <laughs> of the rich tapestry of life what are you going to do
uh just a fun little ride um <laughs> what was what was the most disturbing thing that you learned about this period you know the disease the vice the graft the inflation the gross wealth disparities the killing horses for dog food um you <laughs> know for, for me it was oh great here's another example of how americans pushed indigenous people out of the way to get what they wanted wonderful well, so that in fact yeah i mean let's let's not delve too deep into that it is touched upon in the rush to <laughs> It is almost certain now that the two people who first came across gold were members of, of uh, First Nations who who were immediately sidelined by, by their brother-in-law, who was white. Um, yeah, the, I think the the one thing that really sticks out to me, which does not appear in the comic because it just didn't didn't fit with the stuff I was doing. Um, so there were two main routes to get to Lake Bennett and the Yukon. Uh, one was called Chilkoot Pass, which you get to by traveling up from uh, the, the kind of the, the seaports on the American side of the border, up by like Skagway in Alaska. And Chilkoot Pass was so steep, but it was also the shortest pass over the mountains to get to the, the lakes and rivers that led down the Yukon. And so for days and days, the, they called it the Golden Stair, there'd be men... Um, lots of them porters with like stupid amounts of, of um, outfitting on their backs, shuffling step by step up this insane incline, so tightly packed that if you got tired and you had to step off the path and just like collapse into the snow, the heavy snow by the side of the path, you would not be able to get back onto the path for hours before there was a gap big enough for you to return to the path. So this was grueling. And of course, um, by the time the rush was really going, the, the Canadians, the Mounties, had established outposts at the top of the pass. And they had initiated a rule that nobody could go over the pass unless they had a minimum of one ton of supplies. Because they knew that if anybody tried it without that much, they were dead. There was no way they were getting there without that much stuff. So everybody who did eventually make it to the top they, had, they only did it by making like six or seven journeys, backwards and forwards, no horses involved on this one, lots of porters earning a, a good American fortune just from lugging <laughs> other people's shit. But the other pass was called the White Horse Pass, and you could use horses on that. It was much longer, but also much more grueling. And so many horses were worked to death as a matter of course over the course of those first two winters that by the time of the third winter, when they were finally finishing a, a railroad and a, and a cart path up the pass, people would stop and sit on the snow to take a rest and would stick their poles in the ground. And there's this really vivid account I read. One guy says, I put my pole in the ground and I could feel that the ground was a little bit soft. I couldn't work out what it was. And they dug the snow out the way and it was just dozens and dozens of festering horse corpses that have been <laughs> lying under the snow for two years and as the thaw sets in the whole place just reeked like hell itself so yeah this was this was a massive human movement and uh life was cheap and especially animals so um yeah uh, lots and lots of stories like that uh there, there, there was one line that I came across uh, reading about it, uh, talking about cross-border relations between the U.S. and Canada at the time. 
said American businessmen complained that their right to a monopoly on regional trade was being undermined. Like, yeah, that sounds like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, shit. The the Mounties eventually put um, uh, Maxim guns facing outwards <laughs> on the top of the buses just to dissuade people, because like so the the ports the port cities on the American side, particularly Skagway were essentially lawless like you've seen deadwood that that could quite cheerfully have been skagway it was under the the grip of a gangster called soapy smith for about two years and he was gunned down eventually and like the change was instantaneous suddenly it was it was like milk and honey on the streets but before that this guy was he was just napoleon (laughs) he ran the place everybody on the passes on the golden pass and on the the white horse pass they were they were just being fleeced for every single dime they had by this guy's people. They were up there picking pockets, selling fake supplies, earning an absolute fortune from everybody because they were all so desperate and also credulous that they were prepared to pay for anything. So I don't know if the whole series works like this, but the first issue is told as epistolary. And so I was curious when that came into your thoughts because epistolary work and horror go way back at least as far as dracula mm-hmm. so there's a classic vibe to epistolary horror yeah, it's um partly it's because as i said before this this is such an extraordinary time but it is so well documented as a result of all these people who wrote you know some of them wrote diaries some of them wrote to their families back home so it felt honest to to utilize that as a as, as the sort of main descriptive voice. Um, there's a mechanism at work. The the main character, whose name is Nettie Bridger, she's she's writing letters to her son, and that continues not quite all the way, but most of the way through our series. And the gimmick is that she never actually writes anything. She's composing letters in her mind, and she never quite manages to put pen to paper. And that's the sort of slightly unreliable narrative device that I love. You know, I love unreliable narrators. I love people who say one thing and do another because they're clearly lying to themselves. And and we all do. And that makes us far more interesting. And it makes characters far more interesting. But also I love language. I love the language of the day. I spent far too many hours researching (laughs) the language, the slang, the turns of phrase, the syntax, the things that people would have said if they were upper class or lower class. So I wanted to, well, show off is the wrong word, but let's go with it. I wanted to show off. I wanted to have this very strong narrative voice speaking almost directly to the reader. We are being put in the position of the son who she's she's lost. Um, To have fun with the language, to describe things, to hint at the, the, the color and texture of the time. One of the things that the uh, the editor said to me that um, that uh, that Adrian said to me as I started work on this was that he had been looking for a, a story that had a really powerful sense of time and place, um, and I think that's a really good instinct for horror. I think that when you're dealing with mythology and monsters and things that go bump in the night, the more verisimilitude you can inject into the rest of it the more you can make people believe this is real the the more powerful the horror stuff is the more the more poignant the ideas are the the bigger the unnerving 
beats can be. Um, so yeah, it just it all felt like part of the part of the process of uh, like most of the comics I do. There's an element of world building, and it's usually because I'm creating new worlds, fantasy, sci-fi, whatever it is. Um, and it's the same. None of us will ever live in those times, so I have to treat them as if they're completely fictional and spin them so they feel as real and as functional as any completely invented world the the benefit the beauty and ps also the torture is that is that there is documented stuff that tells me there is a right version and a wrong version so i can't just invent shit <laughs> to my heart's content i have to be a little bit honest in speaking of location uh what is it about the cold that seems to inspire so much terror. There isn't as much tropical horror. And as Dan pointed out in our little notes document, what there is is often about the animals that live in the tropics, your jaws, your piranha, versus the cold, where you've got stories like Frankenstein, The Shining, and The Thing that take place in deep cold. Is it that the cold and the dark and death are linked or is there more to it than that i just want to point out real quick on my list of tropical horror movies i also had sharknado yes true (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you wouldn't want to miss that it's a good question um i i mean i'll I'll be honest i've not considered it It's, it's clearly instinctive right so if we if we unpack it i think you're right i think that there is something fundamentally that reminds us of our mortality that has to do with winter, the nights drawing in, the, the, um, the lack of light pollution, the snow comes along, we're all very close to death. There's a reason that we celebrate such big feasts at, at the winter solstice every year, uh, the return of the spring. I mean, there's, it, it's, it's no great spoiler that I think episode four of the rush is called the Thor so there's, there's clearly a lot of, of kind of seasonal um, consideration going on here. Um, I would say, not to take issue with anything you said, because it's absolutely right. I For my honeymoon, I was in Bolivia. I went for a, for a couple of weeks in the Bolivian jungle, and I mean like proper jungle. And you think, you think of jungle as being, you know, going for a walk, and there's monkeys, and there's, there's jaguars just pouncing around and crocodiles and actually what you realize when you're in the proper deep jungle is that you see nothing there is if if somebody hasn't spent years with a machete or a bulldozer making a tiny little path which by the way won't last longer than a week if they stop keeping it maintained then you see nothing because it is just alien it is a completely chaotic alien environment where everything only exists because it's eating something else. And I include plants in that. Everything eats something else. So there is absolutely great horror. I'm sure there's plenty of it out there. There is absolutely great horror waiting to be waiting to be told in a kind of tropical uh, rainforesty setting. Um, it's just, I suspect that coming as most of us do from a kind of Anglo-Saxon um, northern hemisphere background, the the echoes of our of our kind of um, seasonal past, our kind of Victorian mini ice age vibe. Hey, maybe that's it. 
you know most of yeah. the really defining ghost stories that we've grown up with come from that kind of victorian quasi-gothic of when winters were deep and summers were short maybe it's just that we've associated it with that i don't know but it, it feels right doesn't it yeah, I, i'd be curious listeners if if you know some really good tropical horror please let me know because i would like to read it <laughs> anaconda that's another one. Oh, yeah, no, but again animal and it's good yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, by the way, I'm coming up with some shit examples. I know that. The only thing it's occurring to me as we, is uh, Rom V's The Savage Shores. Right? And that is set in the, the Indian jungles. And so there is some of that. And, I mean, there are creepy tales that are set in the jungles, but they're often adventure stories yeah. with you know, an ominous air to them. They aren't horror in the, something like, and this is a terrible example because of the absolute pervasive racism through it, but Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom (laughs) is sort of a horror story, but it is very much an adventure story with horror elements versus a true horror story. I think one of the pro- I mean, so like my mind goes immediately to um, what's it called, Apocalypto. That that mm. Gibson, which I, I suspect could be with a straight face called a horror. Mm. Uh, I mean, historically, it's abominable. It's it's completely completely inaccurate. But the the problem one faces when when one is presenting the jungle as a as a kind of frightening alien environment, where the the terror comes from other people is that you are immediately in the territory of othering. And, and that's that's something like when, when you're looking at like Westerns, especially generally speaking, most of the black hats to, to, to use the obvious expression are other people. And in the rush, we kind of play fast and loose with that. We're, we're establishing a mystery which doesn't get solved until the end, but we're, we're very, very careful not to generate our terror as a result of othering human groups and when you look at recent horror there's for instance i watched midsummer recently you seen midsummer yes amazing movie but it succeeds because it others scandinavian white people now clearly that's okay they're not going to get too upset about that it's it's completely fictional but if imagine if the same story had been set in North America and the little group that they were going off to join was a, a Native American group or a First Nations group, it would be a completely different story because it would be punching down. And I think that's quite often what happens with the sort of um, tropical tales with like, I think of, you know, like Haitian zombie movies and they tend to be quite sort of black exploitation-y and they tend to be a little bit um, unlovely by today's standards. So there's probably a good reason that the, the, the peril in those movies comes from snakes and crocodiles and jaguars rather than, than, you know, uh, tribes, because, because that's all a little bit reductive. Um, oddly enough, did you guys see the terror? No. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a fucking amazing piece of TV, by the way, there's, there's a few slightly wobbly sets, but otherwise it's really, really good. I highly, highly recommend it based on an incredible novel. Um, it's, it's the sort of, secret history of what happened to um, the, the Terror and the, uh, the Erebus, which were the two ships that were sent out by the, um, the Royal Society to see if they could first find the Northwest Passage, which 
cups around the top of Canada, and they both went missing. Um, and we know from historical evidence and archaeological evidence that they sat there for probably a couple of years, slowly starving, getting scurvy. There's rumours that they probably cannibalised each other a little bit because what else were they going to do? But the terror of the TV show and the novel posits a sort of supernatural reason for why these things happened. But it does it in such a way that it doesn't stray too far into othering the native people who are encountered and are part of the story. And that's that's kind of been the, the touchstone for the rush. I like to describe it as the terror meets Deadwood. And, and that sort of feels like a kind of a kind of useful way to, to position it as an elevator pitch. So uh, one last question as we wrap up, uh, talk about the rush here and move on to other, a couple other things. Uh, knowing what you know now about this period, does it recontextualize what you would do for a Klondike bar? Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of, I, sort of uh, uh, I, I don't like that's a chocolate bar, right? Let's be completely clear. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was worried whether there was going to be a, a cultural gap here. So. <laughs> My brain was going, uh, do you mean a gold bar? Because I, I'm not interested in that. But then I realized you're talking like, if are we in chocolate or are we in ice the, cream? The ice cream it, uh, it's, bar, uh, yes. Yeah, a chocolate surrounding ice cream. Well, hey, you were about to see me try and bullshit my way through an answer that I had absolutely no <laughs> way to answer. So I'm glad I stopped and asked. Um, I don't know because I've never had one. I'm not a big dessert guy, so uh, okay. so ice cream not top of my list. But um, uh, if it, like I was reading about this recently, and this is going to be a little bit insulting, so I apologize. But do you know the difference between American chocolate and British chocolate? I don't. It's, it's really dumb, and it's it makes perfect sense when you when you learn it. Um, and to go back a couple of steps, steps you'll find that when British people first try American chocolate, they will say, this smells like vomit. And they're not exaggerating. It really does smell like vomit to us. And it's because in the UK, small country, the milk that gets used to make chocolate doesn't have to travel very far. So it gets taken from the dairies to the factories. And that happens within the space of a few hours. US, considerably bigger the milk has to have preservatives added to it before it leaves the dairy. Mm -hmm. And the preservatives contain the same chemical <laughs> that is in the smell of vomit. Now, you guys who've grown up with it, never taste it. You'll never even realize it's there because it's just part and parcel of your, your <laughs> cultural upbringing. But yeah, I'm really sorry to say your chocolate tastes like sick as far as I'm concerned. So uh, when I first thought a Yukon bar was a chalky bar, I was um, I was struggling to be polite. So now I know. All right. <laughs> sorry. No. This is good. I, I have little doubt that my wife, the pastry chef and chocolatier, would probably say the same thing about traditional American chocolate. And she's pretty American. <laughs> Oh, man. But, uh, you know, we've got a few more minutes left, so I figured we'd sort of lightning round, bounce around to a couple of other uh, projects of yours. You um, know me well enough now to know that there's no lightning rounds. <laughs> 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 Fair. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, uh, real quick, a uh, little way of X here. Matt, go ahead. Uh, so now that we've come through way of X, how did you work to strike a balance when writing Fabian Cortez? This is a character who is an irredeemable shit, always has been, 
and you never presented him as anything but yet you still found a way to show his humanity is probably the best word in my lexicon even though i'm sure cortez would take some umbrage at having humanity directed at him yeah i mean i i'm fascinated by arseholes what can i say <laughs> <laughs> He's a prick. He's a he's an absolutely nasty piece of work. But we are so used to heroic stories. We are so used to the story where somebody who is fundamentally good overcomes some inner flaw to be even better than they were before. I don't think there's no room in superhero comics for people that you thought were irredeemable turning out to maybe have just a sliver of hope in them. He's never going to be a nice guy. He's never going to be somebody that you root for, but discovering that nobody thinks of themselves as evil. That's, that's quite important in my view. Nobody ever wakes up and goes today, I'm going to do some evil. Like the, the most evil people that we can think of thought they were doing the right thing. And if you confronted them with the right amount of empathy, maybe you could persuade them that they were getting it wrong. Um, they'd still be monsters. They'd still be be worthy of, well, punishment, question mark. We Technically, we don't live in cultures that punish. We live in cultures that try to re-educate and to, to keep everybody else safe. Um, these are all the big questions that I'm interested in and which I like to disguise behind layers of superheroes hitting each other <laughs> in my comics. Uh, so what is what is the official line when people ask you about that teaser at the end of the onslaught revelation with uh, Nightcrawler and his new team? I mean, the the official line we haven't. So nobody's quite that I've seen. Nobody's figured out what this book is going to be called, but it is coming. It is coming uh, next year. And I can say nothing more about that other than that there are enormous plans afoot. And this is part of them. OK. All right. Fair enough. Um, I don't think I, I've gotten to say this actually like on on air on the podcast uh, since since the series ended. But I, I messaged Bob Quinn about it when I read the Onslaught Revelation. Uh, I am very happy to see Nightcrawler's beard back. Uh, it defies yeah. nature and it is daddy as fuck. And I love it. Yeah, he, uh, he was agitating to do that all the way through. In fact, the first. <laughs> The first piece of art of Bob's that I ever saw was a like a I don't know if it was a commission or a sketch. It was on his Instagram of a a fully her sweet nightcrawler, and um, we didn't feel we could go straight there. We had to earn it. <laughs> we got there in the end. There you go. Um, and finally, as we uh, discuss your Marvel work, uh, it's not so much a question as a statement. But I was super excited to see you're going to be using Pfizer Hussein in the upcoming. Uh, Death of Doctor Strange, X-Men Black Knight, because that is a great character who does not get as much play as she should. Yeah, totally. Uh, amazing. I echo everything you say. Your statement is factually correct. <laughs> Marvelous. And speaking of assholes tangentially related to superhero <laughs> comics, <laughs> you wrote a tragically short run on John Constantine Hellblazer which was for me the best that character has been in since his vertigo days. Uh, was there, when you were given that assignment or when you got involved with 
the Sandman universe stuff. Was there any concerns or anything you were given when it came to using Constantine as he's a Constantine, uh, depending on who you talk to? And I understand there are very strong beliefs on how that should be pronounced. Um, When you were dealing with a character who is, you know, you're given this Vertigo-esque version of the character, but he's also in Justice League Dark and on an American television series that airs in prime time? Or was it just like, this is a separate version of the character and you do this character as you see fit that you should? I mean, it's it's more the latter than the former, but I, I tried to be quite sneaky about it and, and sort of thread the needle a little bit by... by it's really funny. Like uh, this is a much bigger conversation. So much for your lightning round, guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> we were doing so well. My bad. <laughs> so I'm just reclining in my chair, pulling a pint. Um, continuity is both extremely stupid and extremely sophisticated. Uh, the people who complain about it. Uh, it's not fair because Batman's in 300 teams all at the same time. That strips his credibility. <laughs> How dare they? Are really a very small minority. Now, they're right. It does stretch credibility. Batman can't be in 300 teams at once. But the vast majority of Batman fans read all those books and don't mind because they have an extremely sophisticated piece of mental technology making them not think about it. And that's brilliant. That's that's the sort of thing that writers who want to go straight to people's hearts have to think about a lot, because if you can get inside that little bit of clever brain gristle, then you can do anything. So when it comes to things like Constantine, rhymes with swine, easy way to remember, um, I could spend hours saying, ah, but that's a different one and this is a different one. And you'd never see him rubbing shoulders with superheroes because he'd think they're fundamentally stupid. And anyway, in his world, they wouldn't exist because he does magic and blah, blah, blah. Or you could just say, here's a character who knows he's doomed, knows he's a prick, occasionally tries not to be, and that's compelling. And we hint at the fact that he's lived through a lot of stories. We hint at the fact that in his world, stories are more important than reality, because that's the nature of magic. Sorry, but there it is. And we go from there. And so the first issue was a sort of Hail Mary sidestep around all this tangled continuity to say, you know what, it just works. <laughs> it just he's, he's come from a version of his life. He's stepping into a different version of his life. The fact of doing that has caused some ripples in the nature of the story that is his life. And that's going to come back and bite him on the bum. And in the meantime, let's just tell some incredible stories about him being in London. Um, it was cut short. Not like I don't feel as hardly done by now as I did at the time, because as a 12 issue run, it's satisfying. It, it manages, you know, I had to, I had to tie up the, the ending maybe a little faster than I would like, but that's okay. That's comics. The The real pain is that I had so many more stories I wanted to tell, which I may not get a chance to tell now. Um, but even then, I can't be too butthurt about it because they weren't going to keep 
commissioning books if it wasn't making enough money. Now, my metric for enough money is clearly different from theirs because I thought we were selling quite well. We were clearly in profit. But at some point, somebody has to say, here is the line. And if you dip below the line, that's it. You're gone. Um, it wasn't handled very well. Um, I don't know who made the decision. It certainly wasn't my my utterly amazing editors because they were all just as heartbroken as I was. But there it is. That's, that's comics for you. Um, if I hadn't trained myself to treat that book and the dreaming before it as if they were creator-owned comics because that's the only way you can tell really meaningful stories that come from your heart is to believe that you own those stories so that you can impart them to other people if I hadn't worked so hard to make them feel that personal then it would have just been a shrug you know hey work for hire that's what happens you do your best you find a thing that makes it exciting you hope that you're changing people's lives but it's work for hire somebody else will come along and write about this character next week um so yeah i was devastated abstractly still am but mostly devastated as a result of the stories i won't get to tell rather than the stories i did well speak speaking of 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 books that certainly were your baby uh did we just see you tease a return to coda your uh boom series with matthias Vieira? <laughs> you did not you saw me okay okay uh so coda has had this absolutely blessed life um it it was eisner nominated it was up for the shortlist for the the grand prix at the um the angoulême awards so just to sidestep that um mm -hmm. it has had a huge life in non-english language territories mm. especially in france and belgium but also germany and uh the ukraine and uh spain i think i've lost track it's it's done really well and and you know again not to diminish the the world in which we all tend to work it's always worth remembering that what we think of as comics is actually <laughs> quite small it is the US mostly spandex oriented industry compared to the European Banda Desine comic and the Asian manga <laughs> comic. And, and you know, we, we um, forget that we are a relatively small cousin at our peril. So anyway, Code has done amazingly. Um, Matthias and I love working together. Uh, it just won a, a critics award, the Association of um, Banda Desine Critics and Journalists. Um, there's some really exciting news about Coda that I'm not going to not going to go down because it's it's not not knowledge yet. But mm -hmm. um, in the meantime, Matthias and I, with uh, Matt Lopez, and I say Matt Lopez rather than Matthias Lopez because having two different people that sound like Matthias or Matthias when you say that <laughs> it's really complicated, um, are working on something which we are hoping to announce in the next month, and it's not quite what anybody thinks it is it is the most daring and visually stunning thing certainly that i've ever worked on and i suspect in comics i'm, I'm not <laughs> not even making that up it is it is a hell of a thing and i can't wait for everybody to see it well that's fantastic and we look forward to that announcement uh Cy, this has been a fantastic hour uh Final question before we let you go how can people follow you online and keep up with everything that you're working on right now um, I have a website, which is simonspire.co.uk. I don't update it nearly enough because uh, as 
formally mentioned parent <laughs> and sleep. Um, I do tweet at uh, at SciSpurrier, but less and less these days. I, I try to keep it work related because it was just eating my life. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, you can get me through the website or through Twitter if there's something important. Excellent. Uh, Sai, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure, guys. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, Chris is on Infinite Earths, and the new Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by our own Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at Comics XF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Cat Purcell from Comics XF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and Comics XF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.